Hello, everyone, and welcome to the December 11th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Joel Allen with the Culver City Office of Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining me. And now, here's what's been going on. The U.S. Supreme Court declined to review a controversial appeals court decision that allows workers' compensation claimants to sue an employer as third-party administrator under federal racketeering laws. The group alleges that Cassin's Transport and Crawford and Company used unqualified doctors to give fraudulent medical opinions that supported the denial of their workers' compensation claims. The workers also allege that the TPA, the company, and the doctors committed mail and wire fraud. The Sixth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in October that a federal RICO action is not precluded by an exclusive remedy statute included in most state workers' compensation laws. Attorneys and employer groups criticized the appeals court decision, claiming that it provides an avenue for federal courts to rule on state workers' compensation claims decisions and that the ruling will raise costs associated with the litigation of claims. The case now returns back to the federal district court for trial on the merits of the workers' claims. Well, that was the only significant court decision of the past week or so, it's been a busy week for workers' compensation fraud. Leading the pack, we have Teresa Ann Lee, 45, of Prunedale. Ms. Lee was arrested on December 9th on suspicion of committed workers' compensation insurance fraud, financial elder abuse, and grand theft. She could be sentenced with up to five years in prison if convicted on all five charges. Investigators allege that Ms. Lee submitted a false workers' compensation claim to the state fund claiming she fell off a ladder while employed at a Santa Cruz apartment complex. Authorities claim that Ms. Lee faked her injury. Ms. Lee has received more than $13,000 in total temporary disability payments and nearly $7,000 worth of medical treatment. The investigation revealed that Lee allegedly used the name of the elderly owner to obtain utility services for her personal unit. She also reportedly portrayed herself as a relative of the apartment complex's owner in order to get rental payments and deposits in her own name. Authorities allege that Ms. Lee collected $900 from three elderly tenants, cashed the checks, and then used the money for her own personal use. I guess she won't have too much trouble affording presents this year. Elder abuse, including financial abuse, is a crime in California. It's probably also a crime in most other states. Joining Ms. Lee is Randy J. Barrett, a Canoga Park insurance broker who collected insurance premiums for workers' compensation liability and property coverage from a card club located in Ventura County. Barrett placed a portion of the coverage but neglected to obtain workers' compensation coverage for the client. Because Barrett assured the client that everything was in order, the client was unaware of the lack of coverage. After the client thought the coverage expired and went to another broker to obtain new workers' compensation insurance, it was discovered that there never had been workers' compensation coverage in the first place. The Ventura County District Attorney filed a criminal case charging Barrett with one count of grand theft by embezzlement. Barrett pled guilty was sentenced to 240 days in jail and five years probation in order to make restitution to his victim. The California Department of Insurance revoked his license because of the seriousness of the offense, thus proving that outright theft will not be condoned. Finally, to round out the trifecta, we have Ramona Smith of Ontario, 
a California Highway Patrol dispatcher. The San Bernardino District Attorney's Office filed two felony charges of workers' compensation fraud and perjury against Smith. Investigators claimed that Smith was employed by the County of Los Angeles as a home health care provider at the same time she was on disability leave from her job with the CHP. Smith has since been arrested and was booked into the West Valley Detention Center in Rancho Cucamonga until she can make the $50,000 bail. Maybe she can borrow some money from Teresa Lee. With the end of the qu year quickly coming up, annual finances are on everyone's mind. Employers have been bracing for higher premiums next year after the WCIRB recommended a 22.8% rate increase. However, despite the possible increase, it seems that employers will have a better-than-expected premium situation next year. The Department of Insurance recently analyzed the rate changes requested by 59 of the top 100 workers' compensation insurance companies. These top 100 companies together represent over 97% of the market. The straight average premium rate increase for all 59 companies, when weighted for market share, is 4%. This calculation does not include state funds, which would just skew everything. Of the 59 companies, 42 have filed for rate increases between 6 tenths of a percent and 12 percent. 13 companies filed for no overall rate change, and surprisingly, four companies filed for rate decreases ranging between 1 percent to slightly over 8 percent. Here at Floyd, Scarron and Kelly, we do not promote one company over another, and thus you will have to find out on your own which companies are bucking the trend. The tepid economy has raised legislative concern over the financial integrity of self-insured groups. The financial failure of a self-insured resulting in its inability to pay claims could result in the state assuming the financial burden. While this might make the SIGA attorneys happy, cases have been drying up with the relative stability of insurance companies over the past several years, it would just be a headache for everyone else. Joe Cotto, chair of the Assembly Insurance Committee, asked the California Commission on Health and Safety and Workers' Compensation, known by the sound of its acronym, CHESWIC, to analyze the statutory and regulatory oversight of workers' compensation self-insurance groups, also known as SIGs. Statutory authority for self-insurance groups in the private sector did not exist before 1993, making them a comparatively new phenomenon in the California insurance scene. Even with the authorization the first private sector SIG in California was not approved until about 2002, which seems about the typical bureaucratic pace. There are now 28 active SIGs in California, ranging from groups of three members to as large as 743 members. One SIG reported over $1.1 billion in covered payroll, which is, as we say, real money. The 38-page Cheswick report published this week finds that California already has protections against fiscal mismanagement superior to that found in most states, and funding for loss reserves has always been required at a higher confidence level than required elsewhere. Despite the extensive 2009 overhaul of the SIG regulations, the report found that further improvements can strengthen the self-insured program. For example, Cheswick claims that the new 2009 regulatory system is not as strong as it could be in managing the risk of defaults. SIG program administrators are not required to be licensed, a weakness that Cheswick recommends be corrected with new regulations to establish 
program administrator qualifications similar to those required for TPAs. Several other recommendations were made on the topics of audit procedures, eliminating conflicts of interest, and financial risk management. For an example of the dire straits faced by self-insured entities, we look to the Bay Area, where in San Francisco officials are searching for a way to bandage a budget deficit of nearly a half billion dollars. Sounds a lot like Los Angeles. Since it does not look like the federal government is going to help them out, they hope to save millions of dollars next year by cracking down on abuse by city and county workers claiming to be sick or injured. San Francisco workers' compensation claims are paid directly from the operating budget, and each department is financially responsible for the claims filed by their own employees. Officials claim that identifying abuse and managing workers' compensation cases more efficiently saved as much as $4 million last year. The city and county of San Francisco employs approximately 26,000 people. Over 3,400 workers' compensation claims were filed last fiscal year, a staggering 13% claims rate. These claims cost Bay Area taxpayers nearly $42 million, which was actually 8% less than the previous year, in which $45.5 million was spent on compensation. This year, city officials say they aim to reduce claims by another 5% to help with a projected budget deficit of over $522 million. And to close out this week's episode, we have a couple of developments from the medical world. The Food and Drug Administration has asked manufacturers of prescription pain medications to provide more specifics on an industry plan to curb growing abuse of opioid drugs. As this is the first time <coughs> the agency has developed, excuse me, has sought to develop a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy for an entire class of drugs, it is understandable that the drug manufacturers might not have realized that an actual plan was requested, not just general ideas. Industry representatives told the FDA they intend to develop a phased-in approach to deal with the problem. This approach can include a voluntary training program for doctors to better educate them about proper use of painkillers, as well as requiring the government certification for the prescription of controlled substances. Currently, a prescription must be registered with the Drug Enforcement Agency to prescribe this class of drugs, which does not presuppose that the doctors actually know what they are doing with the drugs. Congress would have to approve any requirement of physician training to, in order to receive DEA certification. The FDA said the goal was to find a balance between reducing abuse of the drugs and maintaining access for patients who need the painkillers. As there is some concern that doctors might opt out of prescribing the painkillers if the requirements to do so are too burdensome. The FDA will hold more meetings with the industry group, doctors, and the public next year to try to further develop a plan. Imagine that, a government agency actually requiring a plan with specifics. Maybe the FDA can move on to Congress next and try to get some actual details about the proposed health care legislation. While on the topic of finances and drugs, we learned this week that drug cost inflation and workers' compensation is up 7.5%. This is according to the Health Strategy Associates' sixth annual survey of prescription drug management and workers' compensation. This increase came after five years of progressively lower drug cost inflation rates documented in previous surveys. Workers' compensation payers said that the primary cost driver was utilization, 
citing such specific issues as the over-the-counter use of medications, the overuse of painkillers, and physician-prescribing patterns. To combat inflation, payers are, are increasing investments in analytics and moving towards step therapy and stronger clinical management of pharmacies. Payers are also calling on their pharmacy benefit management firms for deeper insights into pharmacy trends, better management of claimants with chronic pain issues, and stronger first-fill capture programs. Other concerns cited were per-unit cost increases, the predominance of single-source brands, and OxyContin rebranding. Physician dispensing continued to be an issue for payers with significant business in California and the southeastern United States, especially Florida. Maybe this will change if the FDA manages to enact its plans. Finally, a recent medical review found that an injection of cortisone seems to work no better than oral painkillers. Injections of anti-inflammatory corticosteroids are a common treatment for various injuries to the tendons, the bands of fibrous tissues that attach muscle to bones at the joints. For the study, researchers combined the results of 20 clinical trials that tested steroid injections including tennis elbow and tendonitis of the rotator cuff in the shoulder. The researchers found that in the short term, up to eight weeks after treatment, steroid injections were better than physical therapy at easing pain and improving joint function. The injections, not surprisingly, were also better than receiving treatment. This advantage, however, was not seen over the longer term. Further, furthermore, Cortisone injections were not found to be any more effective in the short or long run than non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs such as naproxen. Claims professionals might want to send requests for steroid injections to utilization review to see if such requested treatment meets current evidence-based guidelines. Well, it's the holidays, and thus not many meetings and the like are going on. That being said, on Tuesday, December 15th, we can all look forward to the DWC's public hearing on proposed regulations for the Workers' Compensation Information System, commonly known by its acronym WCIS. The hearing will take place between 10 a.m. and 5 p.m. in Oakland at the auditorium of the Elihu Harris State Office Building, not commonly known by its acronym EHSOB. There must be public hearings of all proposed DWC regulations before they are adopted. Although there is no requirement that anyone actually attend the hearings, it is important for our industry to read proposed regulations and attend these public hearings to express any concerns we might have before the regulations are adopted. Once the proposed regulations are adopted, it is too late to complain about poor language or any other unintended consequences of the regulations. That's all our news and events for this week. Please check out our website for daily news updates, past editions of our news, and a lot more. And if that's too much, remember, you can always subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone or iPod by searching for WorkComp Academy, that's one word, in the iTunes store. Again, I'm Joel Allen with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us, and please visit us again next week for a recap of future developments.